Good morning. Welcome to Sandy Ridge this morning. It's good to see all of you here. Welcome to those of you who are visiting. See some family members represented here, so it's good to have the house very well filled. I also know there's some missing, which is typical on a Sunday morning in the summer. That's okay. We are grateful to be together and look forward to worshiping with each of you. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Thank you, Father, for your mercies that are new this morning. Thank you for your enduring faithfulness. Lord, thank you for your love, of which we are undeserving. Our desire this morning is that everything we say and do would be to your honor and glory. We ask that during this time your Holy Spirit would move freely among us in our hearts. Would you open our eyes to your truth? Lord, I pray that the truth this morning would be um, able to reach the eldest, even to the youngest, Lord, in a way that is understandable. Thank you again for your presence that you promise us, and we, uh, Lord, we want to give you glory and want to worship you with pure hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like for you to take your Bibles this morning, turn them to Psalm 1. I've been thinking about this psalm for a couple of weeks. Originally, I was on to preach last week, and things switched, so my thoughts were still there this week, and I decided to to do a little digging on this passage here. Very interesting, the psalms. Psalm 1 could probably be considered a preface to the rest of the psalms. If you ever read a book, by the way, Beverly, welcome home. I just see you over there now. It's good to have you here after a couple of months. If you ever read a book and you come across, you open it and you, you find the preface of a book and it kind of gives you a bit of an idea of what is to come. Sometimes the preface is written by someone other than the author. Maybe, they're, maybe they read the book and they're giving a bit of an overview of what is to come. I don't exactly know who the editor is of the Psalms, but the Psalms were compiled over many centuries. There's a Psalm of Moses, you have Psalms of David, and there's, there's a lot there. It's broken down into different books as well. Some have speculated that Solomon possibly was the editor of Psalms and, and compiled all this. I don't know if that's true or not. So there's the chance that Psalm 1 was maybe written by, uh, it's an unnamed author. But as we look at this this morning, I would like for you to consider that Psalm 1 in a, in a way sets the tone for what is to come in the rest of the Psalms. The, uh, if you've ever done much reading in Psalms, you realize that Psalms is broken up into five different sections, or five different books. Uh, my Bible here at the beginning of Psalms says book one. Now these are not all compiled necessarily chronologically, or necessarily by author, but there is a bit of a, a form there, and I, I didn't spend lots of time studying this, but I find, I find it very very fascinating. The first five books, or I'm sorry, the first book is chapters 1 through 41. And I never realized this, but in each of these five sections, they all conclude that section with, with somewhat of a doxology. You know how we sometimes sing the doxology after a service. Praise God from whom I think. Praise God. Now I can't even say it. Say it someone say it out loud. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
So each of those sections ends with that kind of an idea, an idea of, of praising God for what he's done. Uh, there's also the idea that possibly the breakdown of the Psalms into five books is a reflection of the Hebrew Bible, which was the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. So whether that's true or not, I'm not sure, but if you think about the Hebrews during this time period, or the Jews, their Bible was the five books of Moses, for the most part. That's what was compiled to this point. And so it maybe uh, would make sense that the Psalms were broken up similarly, and I believe they were used in, in public worship. There were certain times, like the Passover, where certain Psalms were used, other festivals. And so I think sometimes we underappreciate the Psalms, because we, we don't really understand where are these all coming from. It seems like a random collection of, of writings. <clears throat> there is uh, just a little bit of maybe some facts about this, of the breakdown I'd like to <clears throat> go through a little bit here. First of all, the Old Testament is, is broken down into a number of sections. So, like I mentioned already, the Torah, or the law, was the first five books of Moses. Then you also have uh, the writings of the prophets, <clears throat> And then also there's additional writings like the Psalms or the books of wisdom and poetry. So as we read our New Testament or our Old Testament today in English, we have Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is, again, it's the Pentateuch. And then we have the books of history, Joshua all the way through Esther, very much loaded with the history of Israel and the known history of the day. After that comes the books of poetry and wisdom. Now, Psalms fall in that category. So if you're wondering what type of a book it is, it falls under the, the, uh, the heading of poetry and wisdom. In that, in, that head, or in that section of the Bible, you have Job, you have Psalms, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So in that body of, of wisdom literature, we could call it, the Psalms fall in that. And then you end with the major and minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. Our, uh, our VBS class this year, uh, we were teach, uh, my wife and I taught the fifth grade, we were learning, we went through and we learned the books of the Old Testament. And I was, I don't know if I'd ever actually fully memorized the order of the books, but it was very interesting to me as you thought about just the logical breakdown of how God, how the scriptures have been laid out, and there is some, there's some rhyme and reason to it. And you, when you see it in these different classifications, you understand how God use, uses the Old Testament to teach us a lot about himself and about, about man and the journey of man. <clears throat> So Psalms is a book of wisdom and poetry. I already mentioned that there's five books within Psalms. <clears throat> Each of them concludes with a doxology. I'll give you a couple examples here. The last verse of Psalm 41, which is the end of book one, says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Then you go to the end of Psalm 72, which is the end of book two. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89, 52, which is the end of book 3. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, 48. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. So you kind of get the idea as each book closes, and maybe they were compiled in different times of history and then eventually all brought together, but they end it with praise, praising the Lord for what he has done. <clears throat> and then Psalm 150, if I didn't mention it, there's 150 uh, chapters in Psalms. 
Psalm 150, just like Psalm 1 is kind of the preface, Psalm 150 is kind of the, the doxology of the whole thing. That one ends by saying, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, just a little bit more of a breakdown before I get back to Psalm 1 here. Because I find this interesting. How is it that God has used the Psalms to communicate things about himself? For example, some of the distinct features in each of these books. In book one of the Psalms, of those 41 chapters, almost all of those are attributed to King David. Well, he wasn't king on all of, at each, I don't think he was king during all that time, but he wrote those, except for Psalm 1 and 2, which we're looking at Psalm 1 this morning, and then chapter 10 and 33, I don't think are, are attributed to David. In, these, in the first book, the term for God is Yahweh mostly. 272 times the term Yahweh is used. Now that's interesting if you understand why, what Yahweh means. Does somebody know what the English word for Yahweh is? What, how, how have we translated that into English? When God called himself Yahweh, how is it written in our English Bibles? Or how do we, how do we understand that in English? Jehovah. It's the name for God, right? So, David talks a lot about Yahweh as opposed to the term Elohim. So what's the difference? Elohim is only used about 15 times in this first book. If you go to Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. God there is Elohim. Uh, The Elohim has the idea of, of the supreme God. He's the mighty one. He's the one who speaks the world into existence. Yahweh is introduced to God's people, I think on Mount Sinai, as I believe is the first, I didn't look for sure, but I believe that's when God begins to introduce himself in a different way. He has a name. And when God is seen as, as the Father God, or as the God of relationship, he's called Yahweh. It's a very sacred name. The, Jews, or the, the people of God were very careful how to use the name of Yahweh, or Jehovah, Jehovah God. So, David, when he talks in the Psalms, he's often talking about Yahweh, the God of relationship. And when you read the Psalms of David, you see David, when he pours out his heart to God and when he's expressing frustration and when he's, you know, vexed with his enemies, he speaks of of Yahweh and it's the God who loves and the God who cares. I find that very fascinating. It's the God of relationship. The next section of Psalms Uh, Many of those are also attributed to David, but then you have some who are for or written by the sons of Korah. You have Psalms of Asaph. Uh, In that section, Elohim is used much more than the word Yahweh. In the third section, it's a shorter one. There's only 17 uh, 17 Psalms in the third section. Uh, Many of those are, are Psalms of Asaph or Korah, and there's one Psalm, Psalm 89, written by Ethan. I'm not sure who Ethan was, but probably the majority of the Psalms are, are of Psalms of David, probably the ones we are most familiar with. <clears throat> I mentioned before, some of these were, were uh, sung at certain times. Um, many of you have probably heard of, of Halal. You've heard of the, the musical group Halal. They sing a cappella songs. That actually is, there are so, Psalms that are considered the Halal Psalms, Psalm uh, 113 to 118. Uh, history would tell us those were sung on Passover night. So there was very much a different use for, for different times um, in their history. 
how these psalms were all uh, collected is a bit of a mystery. So maybe the five books reflect a growth over time of being added to. But no matter how it is, this morning, I wanted to give you a little bit of that background to understand that there, there is a great body of, of, of psalms here that were used very much for worship. In fact, in the, in the New Testament, even uh, the Apostle Paul would have said to sing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Even then, at that time, they recognized that the psalms had, had a value there in worship. I think they were often used in public worship, but maybe beyond that as well. Um, I'm, I'm guessing with not having as much of a written word at that time, so much was done orally in worship. And so one way to remember things is through music, through singing. So if these psalms were sung repeatedly, it had a way of, it was an anchor for truth that people could remember, they could remember the melody, and they could sing it back. I think that's so beautiful about so many of the psalms of David. I think David probably wrote psalms, he practiced singing them, he maybe, maybe he, uh, a lot of these were meant to be to sung with uh, musical accompaniment or, or the harp, so I can imagine David, as he's writing these poems and putting them to music, you know, it wasn't just maybe a one-day thing where he writes it down, but it's something that was worked on and memorized, and it conveyed truth that, that was something that lasted for a long time. So anyway, that's a bit of a background on the Psalms. So going into Psalm 1, opening it up, how would, how would an editor, as he's looking at this whole body of, of songs and poems that were put to music, that were used in public worship, that were used at special times in Israel's history, how would you introduce a book like this? Psalm 1. If you are able to stand, please stand as we read our text this morning. And I'm going to be reading this out of the King James Version. If you have that version, you can read along out loud with me. Many of you, if you attended school, especially UCS, you memorized this, so you can say it by memory if that works for you. Let's read together. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law that he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 1 is a very straightforward book. It's showing a contrast between the godly and the ungodly. Now we probably, we know this so well that we may think, well, what, why study this? Why look into this some more? But I think there's some foundational truth here as the writer is introducing the, the, the book of Psalms here. The godly man and the ungodly. The godly are known by God. God knows them by name. We as men, we don't know who, who is God's. Okay, God knows who his children are. We don't know except we judge by the character of a man. So we can tell, the only way we can tell the difference between a godly man and an ungodly man is by the fruit and by their character. So in light of that, I think we're, we're called personally to evaluate ourselves. Is our character matching what he describes as a godly man? I'd like to get into some details here a little bit. In verse 1, he has three things. Blessed, he starts with the word blessed. The word blessed means happy or content. 
happy or content. I find it interesting that he says the result for the godly man is happiness, even though I don't believe the aim or the motivation is happiness. It's a fruit of some good choices. Um, one of the things that we are in the Bill of, I think it's the Bill of Rights, but one of the, or even in, our, in the Constitution, one of the things that we are um, guaranteed in the United States is the pursuit, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is viewed as, as the good end for all people. Everyone wants to have a happy life. Well, this man, the godly man, it says he is blessed or he's happy and content if he's making some good choices. It's not an end in itself. Seeking happiness for its own sake can lead us to make some bad decisions. So ultimately, the character of a good man, as described here, is given by what law he chooses to live by and obey. So the godly man, his life is is governed by biblical principles. He's making choices based on what he sees in the word of God. And he's, yeah, he's living according to that. What you see on the contrast is the ungodly man is unrestrained. Uh, There is no principle to live by except his own happiness or his own desires. So all of us, we see the progression of, of sin in a person's life. When there's no restraint, when there's no principle to live by, then every temptation, every desire, every lust is to be, is to be gone after, and it takes a person down a, a, a progression of, of destruction, ultimately. So the ungodly, their life goes the way of sin, and there's a downhill descent. Now, notice the three words he uses here in, in the verse 1. I find it uh, interesting. He says, blessed is the man that walketh not. Now, verse 1 is all negative. He does not walk, he does not stand, and he does not sit. I had never considered this before, but do you, do you notice the progression happening? You have walking, standing, and sitting. I had to think of, I remember how it was when I was a child, and after church when it was time to go home, you know, mom and dad started making their way to the door, and then they'd get caught for a while in another conversation, and you know, children are antsy to get out the door, and it just seemed like it took forever. Well, now my children say I do the same thing. You know, I might tell one, hey, let's go home, and so I start walking for the exit. Oh, and then I meet somebody, and so I stand for a while, and next thing you know, we, we settle in, and you know, you sit. So the idea here is you're going somewhere, walking in the way of, what does it say? The way of uh, counsel of the ungodly and then standing, and then eventually sitting. I think this is describing what happens. It's a gradual process of getting turned away from God and getting, first of all, distracted, but ultimately, the bottom of this spiral, he calls it the seat of the scornful. That's a pretty, that's a pretty dire place to be. What is counsel? All of us know what counsel is. Counsel is advice. Um, other definitions are a plan, a purpose. So walking in the counsel of the ungodly made me think a little bit this morning. Where do you go when you seek advice for life? Where do you go for business advice? Maybe financial advice. Advice on how to raise a family. Advice on life problems. Here he says, Blessed is the man that's not walking in the counsel of the ungodly because what happens is when we are taking in counsel, which is advice, teaching, whatever it is, if we're, whatever counsel we continually take in, it has a way of starting to shape our thinking. 
because counsel enters in. That's, that's where we're addressing the mind when we talk about counsel, the ideas that come in. Counsel comes in through our, our mind and it enters into our heart. So it takes a lot of discernment as a person of God, a godly person. Is this good counsel? How do I know if my inputs are good and are beneficial? And can we also recognize that this discernment is not just to say, well, is, is my counsel out there, is it, is it good? But sometimes we even tell ourselves things that maybe are not true. Uh, for example, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's interesting. A way that seems right to a man. So a man may even tell himself, yeah, this is good. This is right. This is a good choice. But if it's not matched up with something higher than himself, it says the end of that can be death. So it's crucial to know, is the advice I'm getting, is the counsel I'm receiving, is it anchored in truth? Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here it says, God will show us the path of life. There is a path that is a good way. There is good counsel if we're, if we're anchored in that, if we're measuring it up with God's word. I think that's what he's saying here in verse 1. So if we get straight away by bad counsel, he says, standing in the way of sinners. And young people, I want to encourage you this morning to think about this as youth especially, standing in the way of sinners. I get the idea of a person who's walking, maybe he's not getting good counsel, and then he stops and he stands, and he's in the presence. Here it says sinners, but it's those who are not, they're not following after God. It's the place of fellowship. It's the place where connection is happening in friendships. What kind of friendships are you building today? Are you standing in the way of sinners or those who are not whose heart is not turned towards God. But it's going to have an effect on us, the kind of friendships that we have. The path of sinners. One other way that could you describe it is to say, am I living and behaving myself in ways that my conscience condemns? God has given us a conscience to help us evaluate what's right and what's good. So I believe that turning away from from walking to standing in the way of sinners, as he describes here, can actually be making some choices that in our conscience we know are not right. But we're, we're, we're meddling around with that. And our conscience may condemn us for a while and may point out that this is wrong, but if we stay there, eventually that conscience becomes seared. And then he says, after that, the next step is the seat of the scornful, where there's actually a scorn for what is right. There's a rejection of truth, there's a rejection of goodness. Living and behaving myself in ways that my conscience condemns. Every person that you see whose life unravels, and eventually, you know, you see a person who comes to a bad end. Maybe they get involved in drugs and they end up in prison, whatever. We look at those as extreme examples. And we see a broken life, a life of despair. Well, no life starts there. Every life begins somewhere else. But how does it get there? It doesn't usually happen overnight. It happens by continual decisions that take us down a path where eventually we say, how did we get here? I have a close relative, cousin of mine. He's actually my age, born the same year. Grew up in a very, very conservative Mennonite church. And I don't really know what all 
shaped his upbringing. But along the way, he, he got married, had a wife. He, they had children. I'm not sure how many children they have, but had a number of children. Somewhere along the line, he reacted to the setting he was from. Maybe some bad experiences. But at some point along the way, he decided to move his family out of that community and just, they went off somewhere else, moved to another state. I don't know if they were plugged into any church or not, but over a period of time, the marriage started to fall apart, and some time ago, they, had a, they, they divorced each other. I don't really keep up with him a whole lot. I've seen, I see the pictures on social media. I know the kinds of things he's involved in and the people he's hanging out with. Well, just last week, in fact, I remembered uh, my wife and I, before we were married, this is probably about 20 years ago, we traveled to another state to attend their wedding, and we served in their wedding. And about a week ago, he just married again, and now he has a new wife. Now, if you would think about happiness, what's the goal of life? Is it to be happy? Well, if you would say, well, your happiness is important. You know, we, 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 gotta, you know, we want to have, have a good life. I think he made a choice in the last week that is for his happiness or his own satisfaction. Probably 20 years ago when we attended their wedding, if I would have suggested to him, hey, just so you know, in 20 years, you're going to be divorced and you're going to be married to another woman. I mean, not to ruin your wedding day, but you know, here it is. If I would have said that, he'd have probably said, I'm, I'm crazy. That's ridiculous. That'll never happen. But it did. And that's one story. You all have your own story. That's happening in our families quite a bit. We're seeing that more and more. There's probably different reasons for that brokenness, and it's, it's sad <clears throat> for sure. But no outcome like that happens without a series of choices. When we walk in that counsel of the ungodly, we then stand in the way of sinners. We surround ourselves with people, maybe where our, our principles are being violated. Eventually we end up, he says, in the seat of the scornful. Who cares? Who really cares? In fact, we mock church. We mock God's people. We point out hypocrisy in Christians, and we have all kinds of negative things to say. Beware, brothers and sisters, that happens little by little. You can't continually place yourself in the path of sin and evil without consequence. The scripture says that Lot, calls him righteous Lot, was vexed. In 2 Peter 2, 7, it says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now, according to the New Testament, I would have wondered sometimes just by reading the Old Testament, you know, did Lot, did he really, was he saved? Are we going to see Lot in heaven? Well, it calls him, he calls him just Lot in the New Testament, but it came at a tremendous price. Lost his wife, he lost his children, they mocked, they didn't believe him. His sons-in-law, vexing ourselves by putting ourselves in a place where we know it's wrong. Verse 1 tells us what not to do. Blessed is the man that walketh not. What about verse 2? He says, his delight, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now you have the positive side of it. He's not doing these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, what delights you this morning? What's the first thing that came to your mind when I asked the question? Where do you find delight? 
or satisfaction or excitement. Here it says, the godly person, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Does spending time in God's word fill you with delight? Are you excited to pull out your Bible in the morning and get in God's word? It says here that that's where this person's delight is. Now, if you find it difficult to think that this is possible, take heart. It says in this passage, there's only two times a day that we have to delight ourselves in the Lord. Day and night, just twice. Day and night, right? Two times a day. Well, does that mean we're constantly walking around with our Bibles and we're constantly thinking about God's Word? I think there's a practical part to this. How do we... How do we meditate day and night? In many Eastern religions, meditation is the idea, especially if you get into things like yoga and other practices like that. Meditation is the idea of emptying the mind, just getting all everything out of the mind, emptying the mind. Well, the Christian way of meditation is completely opposite. We don't seek to empty the mind. We fill it. We fill it. We fill it with God's Word, but we meditate. God, what are you speaking to me about this? And in a way, if you, if, you talk, if you think about it in terms of how do we meditate day and night, by day we meditate by God's word. Is like, it's like a signpost for us. That's what guides our decision. Now, you may not every moment of every day be thinking of a verse or be thinking of a specific line that you've read lately. But as you're processing life and as, as things are coming to you, circumstances, and you're making decisions, the signpost is, well, what does God think about this? And it's always, it's always there in the background. God, how do you feel about this? And the life decisions we make, we make one decision after another. But that's what's guiding those decisions, as opposed to verse 1, where there's a straying away. Meditating day and night. Now, at night, I like to sleep. So when I'm asleep, I'm not really meditating. So how do we meditate at night? Probably the best example I read somewhere that was somewhat of encouragement to me was, we go to bed at night, and it's, it's like our pillow. We're at peace. We can meditate on God's word. We know that God's word is it's truth. It's sure. It's unchanging. Life can be chaotic, but one thing that never changes is who God is. And in a way, we can lay down at night and we can rest because I don't have to fear what happens to me during the night. I remember what it felt like as a teenager before I was right with the Lord. I remember the terror of night, wondering what if I would die during the night tonight. That's a scary feeling, right? But when we're anchored in Christ... When we know we are safe in him, we can lay down and we can rest peacefully at night. Delight in the law of the Lord, and then you meditate on that twice a day, day and night. Right? Next verse says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. On one of the farms that we rent, uh, we've farmed this farm for many years, probably 30-some years. And along the lane, going back into this field, there is a tree. It's an oak, I think it's an oak tree. It's one of the biggest trees I know of in this area. It is a gigantic tree. Now, it's in a a fence row, kind of bordering a neighbor's property, so I've never tried to reach around it with several people to see how big it is. But it's one of those trees that it's been there for, it's a long time. I don't know if it's several hundred years or not. But I'm always impressed just by the sheer size of the tree. We farm up next to it, and the branches tower way out over the field, now, some of the lower-hanging branches, I've already went and trimmed them off because, you know, they hit the tractor going underneath it. But it comes way out over the field. And when I see that tree, I just think, wow, how does a tree become so solid? And 
I don't know how many storms have hit that tree, but that, that thing's not going down unless it starts to rot internally. It's a big tree. Here he gives the picture of a tree planted by the rivers of water. Now, this particular tree I just described to you is right beside sort of a, a marshy area, a bit of a swamp. Sometimes it holds water there. And I, in my mind, I can imagine underneath that those roots are, are stretching way over and they're tapped in to that source. So a healthy tree, he says, is planted by rivers of water. <clears throat> the idea of the tree is stability and durability. There's a constant feeding there. There's constant good health. These are very basic truths. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, but it's, it's foundational. What is the difference between a life that is godly and a life that is ungodly? The godly person finds nourishment continually. They're, they're anchored, they're stable, they're in God's word. <clears throat> there are many times in life, here it says that it brings forth fruit in its season. I don't know about you, but I've often felt that there have been times in my life where I just don't feel very fruitful. I feel like, you know, you're doing the hard work. Maybe you're, maybe you're involved in ministry or you're trying to reach out in people's lives. Uh, you're working hard and you just don't see a lot of fruit. You know, people aren't changing. Or maybe if you're really applying yourself at your job, you know, there's not really, there's no promotion. So there's times when we feel like we're not being fruitful. But the idea here is that there is time for fruit bearing. There's a season for fruit bearing. But even in that whole time, here it says, whose leaf also shall not wither. The leaves are still green. One of the, when you, when you see trees right now, the apple trees, I'm not even sure I didn't look lately to see what, what stage. Some apples have already, um, some apple trees have already given their fruit, but you have some more in the fall. But when, in the summertime, when you're looking at these trees, you know it's a healthy tree when you see green leaves. Now there's no fruit, but there's a sign of health. That's the green leaves, right? So fruitfulness comes at certain times, but the idea is, is there is a healthy tree, it's being nourished from underground by this spring of water, and it's very stable. That's the idea of, of a tree. It takes patience sometimes for fruit to be bore. And sometimes the, the planting, the watering, all those things we do in our Christian life and the lives of others, sometimes others will reap that fruit. That's true. And sometimes we reap the fruit of others' labors. So don't be discouraged if you're faithfully serving the Lord, but you're saying, boy, I don't, I don't feel like I'm really fruitful. Well, is there green growth? Is there signs of life? I think that's the sign of a healthy tree who is not withering. When you look at a tree and you see brown leaves and you see dryness, it's a sign of an, of an internal problem. That tree is in trouble. There's, there's death happening. It's not being nourished. It's not being replenished. So... What's your, what kind of a tree are you like this morning? Let's stand for 30 seconds here, if you would. I'll wrap this up real soon here. Some of you are getting very tired. Stand with me. Next verse, verse 4, he says, The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Here again is another contrast. So he talked about the fruitfulness of a tree, but then he says the ungodly are not so. They are not fruitful, but are they, are, they are like chaff. And I like to keep giving you farming examples because that's what I do. So this week I was out spraying soybeans, and this is the time of year when I love driving through the fields, and the, the plants are lush, they're full, they're big, and when you go and you part through those plants, you see blooms on those plants right now. They're flowering. And as I look over that field, I think, wow, what, what beauty. They're green, they're lush, 
But the reality is, in two months, everything that's visible to us there is going to be chaff and stubble because we're going to harvest it. You may be seated. All that remains after the plant has, has, has fulfilled its purpose is the fruit or the, or the grain. We put that in the bin. So sometimes there is an appearance of fruitfulness, but it ends up being chaff. And here he says, it's like the ungodly. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. We have modern combines today to, to separate grain, but in the old days, they, chaff was what was just the little shell around the kernel. So they'd take that and they'd throw it up in the air on a windy day and that chaff would just, it blew away because it was worthless. Think about a life lived that ends up with just, it's fruitless. It's worthless. Chaff is considered worthless. No fruit. That is what the ungodly are like. Imagine living an entire lifetime of decisions and of living and of doing, and you come to the end of life, and he says, it just kind of all blew away. It's just like chaff. There's nothing of value there. Versus the godly who are anchored. They're fruitful. They're like a tree that's stable and solid. It's going to last until the end. People who refuse Christ's ownership of their lives or the ungodly have a short and meaningless existence, just like chaff. Verse 5 says that the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Sinners will not be able to stand in the judgment. I think this is final judgment that it's talking about. When all things are brought into God, he says we will, they will not be able to stand or rise up in the judgment. Uh, quickly flip your Bibles over to Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read a little bit here in Daniel. Very familiar story. King Belshazzar, this is at the very end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar is the last king. You probably know the story quite well. But in the last night of his kingdom, he is partying it up. He has no idea that disaster is about to happen. In fact, he's getting so high on his alcohol and whatever in the big party, he'd had a bunch of people invited in, that it says that he called for the... The, uh, the cups from the temple to be brought in so they could drink alcohol out of those yet. They're really going to have a party with, with some gold cups. Uh, t- chapter 5 in verse 10. Oh, by the way, so in the meantime, while they're partying and they're drunk, all of a sudden a hand comes and starts writing on the wall. Well, the king is terrified, doesn't know what to do. And in verse 10 it says, Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel." whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. All right, so I'm going to jump down a little bit. So they, they bring Daniel in, and the king, king Belshazzar, just like a typical heathen king, says, if you can do this for me, I'm going to make you third in the kingdom. You're going to get a gold chain around your neck. You're going to be promoted. Well, Daniel doesn't care about that. Verse 17, Daniel says, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. And then he goes on to tell Belshazzar what this all meant. He says that, God gave you a kingdom, just like he did Nebuchadnezzar, your father, or maybe grandfather. He says he gave you a kingdom, 
He gave you majesty. He gave you glory. He gave you honor. And he gave you all these things. And then he kind of talks about how Nebuchadnezzar was lifted up in pride. God had to put him down for seven years. You know that story. Then in verse 22, he says, And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. So there is an accounting about to happen. He says, God gave you all these things. You've been worshiping inanimate objects. You've been reveling with, you've used God's vessels to have your party with. All these different things, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord and you did not glorify him. And so now the hand has come and this is what is written. This is the writing that was written. Mini, mini, tickle you farson. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mini, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. It's over. Your kingdom is done. And not only his kingdom done, but the entire empire was about to fall that very night. Then he says, Tickle, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. You have been weighed in the balances and aren't found wanting. The ungodly are not going to stand in the judgment. It's like the weight. What is your life in the end when God weighs us in the balance? Will we be found wanting or will he see us as godly and having made good life decisions? Belshazzar lost his life that night and the kingdom fell. Weighed in the balance. It's like chaff, it says. The ungodly, those who have chosen to remain on the path of sin, will find themselves outside of the congregation of the righteous, both now and in eternity. That verse ends by saying that sinners will not be in the congregation of the righteous. There is a sense in that that happens now. Uh, when a person is living in sin, there is church discipline that happens. A, person cannot, a sinner cannot remain in the church without repentance. But that's also an eternal reality as well. Sinners will not stand. What a terrifying thing it would be to stand before God in judgment and not be ready. Young people, don't forget that. It's important that we make that decision now. And then our last verse for this morning. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Lord knows the way. In Acts, different times it talks about followers of the way, those who are part of the way. We understand as Christians that the way is those who followed Christ's teachings, who came to Christ um, in the early church, followers of the way. It was, described, it was used to describe people who believed in Jesus and his teachings. And I, I wonder if the reason why it was called the way is because people noticed when you were part of the way, because something changed in your life. You lived differently than you had before. And so people noted and said, this person's a follower of the way. They're, they're following that man, that Jesus. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. One thing that is comforting for us as Christians, I, I find it to be a comfort. I believe that the godly, their life, their example, their choices can live on long after, long after we die. All of you this morning probably have uh, maybe a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, or an influential person, an aunt, an uncle, 
that maybe died a long time ago, but you still remember. You remember the things they did. You remember just who they were as a person. And you still look back at that sometimes and you say, you know, that's, that just, it reminds you of who you want to be. The godly leave a legacy that goes far beyond. So as you think about choices you make, and this, youth, I want to encourage you with this as well. Sometimes you think choices you make today, they affect today. Well, they do, but they also affect tomorrow, and they affect years down the road. And ultimately, our choices can live on past us. And that can be both a good thing and a bad thing. Sometimes bad choices have consequences that go on after we die as well. But good choices have the potential to outlive us, and that is the blessing if we can leave a godly legacy. The opposite is, for the path of the ungodly, is destruction, a broken life. It may be a broad way right now, like the scripture says, with lots of company, but in the end lies tragedy. So as we close the message here, Psalm 1, it introduces, like I said, it introduces the larger book of poetry that was written over hundreds of years. But the simplicity of the message of Psalm 1 is as true today as it ever was. The path of the godly or the path of the ungodly? Which path are you going to choose? This psalm supplies us with three things. The first thing was a test of character. It asked us the question, with whom are you standing or walking or sitting? Because that is an unmistakable indicator of where you're going in life. What path are you on? With whom are you taking counsel? With whom are you walking? Where are you standing? Where are you sitting? That's the test of character. The second thing this psalm gives us is, tells us the rule of life. Where is our delight? When we delight in God's word and order our lives accordingly, then we're living the way God intended us to live. God created us to live for him. And then the third thing this psalm gives us is a foreshadowing of eternal destiny. Acts fix habits, habits settle character, and character determines destiny. By our own deeds and life, our eternal destiny is being settled. And then I read a quote out of the pulpit commentary that I'd like to close with, and it's this. Eternity is the harvest of time. Think about that. Eternity is the harvest of time. Galatians 6, 7 says, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Shall we kneel for prayer? Father, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, you can see into the hearts of every single one of us this morning. You know those who are considered to be numbered with the godly. Lord, it's not something of our own merit. It's the work you've done, but we make a choice. We can either choose you or we can choose our own way, choose our own path. And Lord, we see the results of the choices that we make. Father, I just pray this morning that each one of us would pause and measure ourselves according to your truth. Lord, we just pray that if we would be weighed in the balances, Lord, we would not be found wanting like Belshazzar. Lord, I just ask you to Help us to be honest with ourselves and to just continually evaluate ourselves according to your truth. Lord, I just pray, especially for our youth this morning as they are making decisions for life, Lord, that they would consider the path they are on 
and how those decisions shape their future and how friendships make such a difference. And Lord, I just pray for, for wisdom for each of them. The rest of us as well, Lord, we continue to make choices in our lives. We ask you, Lord, to be front and center in our priorities, in our choices. And through it, Lord, we want to live lives that can be a blessing, that are fruitful, that are stable, and that are anchored. And Lord, someday that we'll have an eternal reward. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.